Greetings, traveller, and welcome to episode two of the Dunkern podcast. I am Colin Hazard, and a particular welcome to all the people who have sent kind messages of support and encouragement following episode one. I should say as well a special thanks to the four lovely listeners who left five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. All your support really does mean a lot to me and the Dunkern as we begin building this podcast into the best darn art centre podcast in all the land. Uh, so I'd like to update you on what I've been working on over the past few weeks, aside from putting together this episode. Firstly, I now have my own website, which is colinhazard.co.uk. Now, despite me looking quite geeky, I'm not really a web techie sort of person. So it's been a bit of an arduous process, but I've got there. And on the site are links to my poems, including videos and audios and commissioned work, as well as information on the music that I create with my band Dirty Words. But the website is not just a place for all of that content, it also makes me look like a serious and dedicated professional poet because as time goes by, more people are buying into that idea. And I guess that's evident in the fact that my debut poetry book is coming out next year. So that's been a constant process of editing and re-editing and starting again with those poems. And my Dunkern writer-in-residency role concludes at the end of March next year, which is around the same time, exact date, TBC, as when my book is to be launched, so it's quite perfectly timed in that the baton of responsibility will move from the residency and the podcast into then promoting slash flogging the book and hopefully some sort of tour slash road trip around Ireland after that road trip. But on that train of thought, I've been sending poems out for submission in the hope that I can get a poem or two published somewhere. And that's just one of the things that poets and writers have to do. And I'm sure there are a few writers listening who know all too well the sheer enjoyment of that process. But I should give a shout out to the wonderful writer Angela Carr, who compiles quite an extensive list every month of magazines and journals that are accepting submissions. And Angela puts the list, along with the deadlines, up on her own website, which is angelatcar.wordpress.com. And I find that resource absolutely invaluable. So if you're a writer and you want to get work published, that's a really good place to start. However, the main downside of sending work to publishers is that you will inevitably get rejections. And that's just another thing that writers have to deal with. Now, I can't speak for anyone else, but to be honest, I get more rejections than acceptances, which can be disheartening. But all you can really do is keep or try to keep persevering. If there's a poem which I've written and that I'm happy with, but which gets rejected, then I try to take it with the mentality that it just wasn't right for that publication. So then I can go and try and find a home for it somewhere else. My main issue at the moment, though, is that I'm also applying for part time, quote unquote, proper jobs, which is also proving unsuccessful. So the long story short is that I've been getting rejected by publishers and rejected by employers. And all I can say is, thank God I'm married or else there'd more than likely be triple rejection going on. But in amongst all that negation was one acceptance that I'm very pleased about. And it was the invitation I sent to my next guest for him to come on the podcast for a good old chinwag. And that guest is Fantastic Mr. Fox, also known as Joby Fox. Joby is a musician who came to prominence in the late 1970s as the teenage bass player in the band The Bank Robbers, who were signed to the famous, sometimes infamous, Good Vibrations label run by Terry Hooley. That was the record label at the forefront of the Northern Irish music scene, primarily the punk scene. And it released some great songs by bands like Rudy and The Outcasts and I guess most memorably The Undertones with Teenage Kicks. I'm sure most of you know that song and perhaps have even seen the film and or musical Good Vibrations, which is a biopic of Terry Hooley and the label at that time. 
And although Juby's band, the Bank Robbers, weren't necessarily a punk band, they certainly had a punk attitude and a really strong local following and were part of an important era of music in this country. However, after the Bank Robbers split in the late 1980s, Juby went on to form the Celtic folk rock band Energy Orchard with his childhood friend Bab Kennedy. And they went on to tour the world and have a number one single in Ireland with a song called Belfast, which was actually written by Juby. In more recent years, he has been making a mark as a fine solo singer-songwriter, as well as, certainly in the time that I've known him, being at the forefront of humanitarian campaigns in the Middle East and Hong Kong and the Mediterranean and more. And as is the way of the world, I've been friends with Juby on Facebook for a long time without really knowing him. We had met very briefly on two occasions. The first was on a poetry video shoot for a mutual friend of ours called Seamus Fox, which we discuss in the chat. And the second was at a charity campaign event in Accidental Theatre in Belfast. At that event, Joby and I were the first two people at the buffet table. So a quick tip for any writers, musicians or artists listening. If you're at an event and there's free food there, get stuck in. Don't be shy. But more importantly, if you know in advance that there's going to be food at the event, bring empty Tupperware boxes with you and you can take some food home. And that, my friends, is the sort of priceless advice that you're not going to get on other arts-based podcasts. Anyway, Joby and I had a great conversation last week and I could have talked much longer to him. Anyone who knows Joby will testify that he could have talked much longer as well. But he's a great guy, wonderful company. However, before I play the interview, I should let you know that Joby was and still is in the beautiful country of Denmark, as that is the native home of his partner Sophie, who he mentions at the start. Also, about five minutes into the chat, Joby talks about picking up gear for a band. By that, he means musical equipment, or so I believe. And lastly, I also need to warn listeners that there are some naughty words used in the conversation, which may not be suitable for young, impressionable and or easily shocked listeners. What can I say? You can take the boy out of Belfast, but you can't take Belfast out of the boy. Now, obviously, you've only got the audio of the chat, whereas I was on the video call with him. It was recorded in late afternoon and at the start I could see him and his background which seemed to be a lovely comfortable Scandinavian style room but by the end of it it was dark outside which meant that the room that he was in was dark and he was wearing a black shirt so it became a bit like the Sinead O'Connor music video for Nothing Compares to You. So you can picture that in your mind as the chat goes on only imagine Sinead with a ginger beard. But now here is the Dunkern calling Denmark. It is episode two of the Dunkern podcast, and I'm very pleased to welcome a songwriting troubadour and one of West Belfast's finest sons, the fantastic Mr. Joby Fox. Hello and welcome, and how are you? I can't complain, Colin, uh, but if I was going to complain... <laughs> <laughs> and we've started already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm in Denmark. Uh, I'm in the basement of uh, uh, Sophie's parents' house, and I've pitched in here... I've got uh, some recording equipment, uh, piano, guitar, and uh, I'm loving it. Uh, in that regard, I'm, 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 I've got the opportunity to to really isolate and uh, keep writing and stuff like that. And uh, really had to think of my feet there. The first lockdown was uh, really looking forward to a wee bit of isolation. But uh, when it, the second one comes around again, it is slightly different. You know, I'm working, but it's it's a different ball game when it's uh, when it's a necessity and and it's not out of choice. You know. And have you have you been in Denmark for the entirety of this year? Yes, more or less since mm-hmm. January, and uh, it's it's 
challenging in so, subtle ways, subtle ways, you know, I, I miss, uh, as a creative person, you, you create, I usually am working in Belfast or London or Bristol. And uh, if you sort of throw up the head, you get fed up, you know, working like that, you know, you're working away and okay, you get some work done or whatever. You're looking for a bit of enjoyment. You've got coping mechanisms, you know, you've got different, back in Belfast, for example, I have a, have lots of different coping mechanisms, you know, I'll go to my favorite coffee shop, talk to shake a few people, you know, and you know, they'll talk shit to me and that'd be great, you know, and if some people call that socializing, by the way. And <laughs> <laughs> socializing in another world altogether. But, uh, you know, and I get to do that and uh, it's very therapeutic uh, and uh, the cracks night and all that. Uh, but here it's different. I've had to find other ways of, of uh, coping when I'm, I've done tools and I've went, okay, what am I going to do now? And uh, so, you know, times it's been, I've, I've took the nature, I went out to, uh, to walking and fishing and stuff like that. And that's been really therapeutic for me too. And it's been a, it's been something that's crap creeping into my work now. I'm singing about nature and I'm singing about being solitary and all of that sort of stuff. It's, uh, it's kind of odd the way it's working. Like. Okay, it's funny, just you mentioned that just as the birds were singing, I don't sure it's coming through. I can hear it in my headphones, but the birds in the background at your end, it's it's quite melodic. There's a there's a door here that just that it just slides right open into the back garden and, and the birds are always there and they're always singing. It's beautiful. No doubt about it. Yeah. The light streams in here are lovely too, so it does. And I can see that the sun is shining in Denmark, but uh, it's as you would expect it's cloudy in Belfast. Some things never uh, change. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It'd be like one of those things you'd want to go home and then as soon as you go home you go, get me out of here. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But speaking of Belfast, so we'll go back right back now to, to I guess, your childhood, because I, I wanted to ask just about your first steps into, into music, like what got you started playing the guitar and writing songs? Uh, I love that question. Always do, honestly, genuinely. I always like, love people sort of taking it from the start and, you know, because it's, you know, it's life's a mystical journey, isn't it? And it's always in retrospect that you look at things and go, Oh my God, that if that hadn't happened, my life would have been completely different in some way. Or, mm. And there, there are particular junctures in life where yeah, you kind of, you look back as I say and you go, yeah, that's, that was a real fatalistic event or whatever. And uh, I suppose my brother, uh, my mother, my mother was a singer. She liked, she wasn't professional or anything, but she liked to sing in bars, you know, when we'd go away to Bendorna or down at Donegal or whatever, you know, she'd get up and, you know, had an old chant, like, you know, she was a lovely singer. And she had aspirations when she was growing up to be a singer. And, uh, you know, that was her dream, if you like. And she went on and had 10 children. So there wasn't much room for the singing. Yeah, I can but, imagine yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There was maybe a bit of lamenting done, you know, in private, like, to say the least. Uh, but she sort of instilled in me the freedom of if I wanted to be a singer, if I wanted to do something creative, and if any of us ever wanted to do something creative, she was, you know, she would have been in support of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I suppose my brother, the older brother, he got a guitar 
uh, my dad bought him a second hand guitar down in Smithfield. And we were all kids. I mean, you imagine with 10 kids, he was the oldest. And he came home and he'd done a couple of Elvis impersonations, you know. Mm -hmm. And that stuck, that stuck in all our heads. All my brothers and sisters remember that. And uh, it was hilarious. And when the Beatles came on, and born in 1962, so around four, five or six, when the Beatles came on, we'd trail the pots and pans out. And we'd all drum on the pots and pans. And, and Martin would have played a few chords behind it or whatever and would all sing and music was a, a part of our lives and our family and then then the punk scene came I was about 16 or 17 actually hell it I was uh, I started picking up gear for a band and a guy called Greg Coyle and uh, he was playing in a band called Uncle Waldo and I heard them playing in a in a garage and I was like the corner boy you know with a bottle of cider hanging around talking shit to my mates and I clearly remember two or three of my friends arguing over nothing, the, the subject matter. I, and, I, and I do recall thinking like this, I do recall thinking, this isn't worth arguing over. It's not worth, it's not an, an intellectual debate or anything. It's just shit talk. And I remember listening to them and going, God, I'm any, I can't, I don't think I could stick much more of this stuff. And I heard uh, uh, the music in the background, I heard this music in the background, I was able to kind of, located the a garage and I seen a friend of mine come in and I said to him, what's happening in there? Sounds great. He says, oh, that's my, my brother-in-law. And I said, do you think I could? You know, I faded away from the kind of corner where these guys were. I said, do you think I could go in and listen to these guys with the mind? So he went in and he asked and they said, sure. And I come in They said, you can sit there and would you give us a hand with the gear afterwards? So I lifted the, some of their equipment and I started developing friendships and stuff with these guys. And they started taking me out there into gigs in Port Stewart and different places. And then I discovered some of the band were Protestants. I come from a Catholic nationalist area mm -hmm. uh, of uh, uh, Town. Then that kind of took me into different areas and stuff like that. And at the age of 16, around about that time in the Troubles, it was, it was a, a bit of an oddity, to say the least. And then about a year later, one of the bands that was rodeoing for needed a bass player. And I started playing bass with them. And I got into a band called the Bank Robbers. Was, was, that was when the Bank Robbers were born. It was, oddly, it was a guy down the street called Liam Carville. And I'd watched this guy all my life walking by in the street. And I never spoke to him. But he was in this band. So he played piano. And it was like, it freaked me out that he was, you know, when... I came in on the back of somebody else and then when I realised he was in the band, I just thought he was a complete, like, stuck-up git, like, bit of a nerd. And, you know, and I was a bit of a lad sort of thing. And then I was like, I was horrified that I had to even speak to this guy, you know, because I, walk, I, I walked by him in the street every day and I used to look at him go, twat, into my head. And I'm sure he thought, fucking asshole. But that was like, you know, and then we met each other. I fell in love with the man. I love him to this day. I love him so much. Such a great guy. Liam Carvel is his name. Yes, and he was the piano piano player and vocalist with the Bank Robbers that you mentioned. And I believe there's also Seamus O'Neill on drums and John McDonald on guitar. That was right. And then eventually we all get in this band and Bob Kennedy was one of our roadies. He was a friend of mine. We were mates sort of even before music, I suppose. But we had this great sense of uh, publicity. And uh, we had this little logo, even back then, and we used to spread all over the place, 
saying things, stupid things like Merry Christmas from the bank robbers and all that kind of stuff. And like, we really just got, we, we were smart enough that we got into people's heads, really. You know, they didn't really know much about our music, but they knew about us sort of thing. Yes, I mean, you were you must have been, uh, a, what, a six, 17-year-old, maybe a 17, 18-year-old, whenever that that's the right. bank robbers found, so, or formed, sorry. And that, so that was 1979. This, most of the information I read about the bank robbers actually comes from Spit, the Spit Records website by Sean O'Neill, who you probably know. Um, and Spit Records, the website says it's the virtual home of Northern Ireland punk. But for me, haven't heard the bank robbers. To me, they're not the classic punk band. They're probably more kind of new wave. That's right, and, and, and that was part of our demise, actually, was because in those days, marketing was, you know, they usually like to have you in a certain genre. And uh, we eventually, I mean, there's loads of stories, but I mean, I don't want to go through all that because we'll be here all day. But I, I can just say to summarize it, that we really made an impact here, here, sorry, in Belfast. We made, made an impact and uh, people loved us. Uh, from everywhere, all throughout the community, they loved us. Uh, even the police loved us, for Christ's sake. And, you know, no one really liked the police in those days, you know. The police loved and, the bank uh, robbers. Oh, sounds my like God. <laughs> well, we, I, I lived out in uh, Birmingham. We moved over there and the rationale was we were doing a few gigs down in London. Uh, the manager lived in Birmingham. He was quite, quite an upper middle class sort of a guy. So we were living in sort of Birmingham bourgeoisie sort of thing. And there we were, six, eight, uh, plus the roadies, eight Belfast guys living in a house in Birmingham in 1980. And the inevitable happened. We ended up getting busted by the cops mm -hmm. that raided the house. Because we were going up and down to London and the back of vans and all the rest. And in those days, it supposed didn't have the same intelligence, computers or whatever. And uh, we were told when we were, we were subsequently raided, arrested, uh, and uh, they told us that they'd been watching us for a couple of weeks, and they were able to tell us where we'd been to and all the rest of it in London. And it was a really freaky experience. So they dragged us down there. It was very, very scary. They kicked the door in. I woke up with a couple of plainclothes guys, like they weren't uniformed, with gun, a gun to my head, got me out of bed, and uh, took us down there. Uh, it was really scary, but eventually we said, look, we're just a band, and they rang, they, the guy that separated us all in the different rooms, and this one guy, quite a sinister looking bloke, and I was sitting in the interview room, and he came in and he, it was like in the movies, you know, he walked in the door, and the door just closed behind him, and I thought, well, here we go, you know, and he says, I just want to know what you've had to do with, uh, and the door just clicked, Colin, I, I literally remember this, the door clicked and he looked up to me and he says, the London bombings. And I fainted. To cut a long story short, I, I literally feel I, I passed it. Uh, I, like I, you know, I didn't, I didn't pass it completely, I didn't lose consciousness completely, but I was on my way. And uh, he slapped me around a bit, but only to get me around and says, look, if you've done nothing wrong, you know, you'll be okay, sit up there, 
do you want a cup of tea and everything? And eventually he said, would anybody vouch for you? And I says, you know, we're from Andersstown. So he rang the local police station, uh, getting back to the point, uh, the police at Andytown. And he came back, this guy came back about 15 minutes later and, and, and the words he said was, you guys, he says, you guys are well got. I just called Andersonstown barracks and the police there said, those are our bank robbers. And if you touch a hair off their head, you'll have us the answer to. Check <laughs> 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 <Like> those class. <laughs> so, but we were, we're a fun band and we, then we, we got a contract with EMI Records, the, the same label as the Beatles, Bowie, Queen. And it was a really incredible, incredible time. And was that, was that something that you had been consciously working towards, that you wanted that contract? And- totally. Absolutely. That was, that, that, was the, that was the goal. You know, we worked really hard. We re- worked really, really hard. And I slept in parks. I uh, starved. I uh, slept in my own clothes for weeks. You know, all the band did uh, for about two years, about two and a half years. And we went over to England. There's whole periods of that where I don't remember uh, where I was or I know it was in London, but it was, we were just kind of living in the back of a van and stuff like that. And it was really, 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 we worked really hard for it. And eventually we got on a program called The Tube, which was a, like a Jules Holland thing. You know, it's like uh, mm-hmm. that, kind of, that kind of thing. And uh, we were spotted by EMI Records and they signed us up. And then we moved to London. I mean, obviously it's well, well documented just how dangerous Belfast was as a city at that time. Did you feel that you were kind of trying to, trying to get out of it, just reacting against that? And that was one of the reasons that, that kind of drove you forward? That's a, that's a really, yes, that's, that's a really good question because it's true. Mm. Because it was like, you know, you could trace it back to the, the, the story I told you about starting in the corner, listening to the band in the background. I just knew the main instincts was just to go towards it and... Yeah, and I realised after a while that the music was a vehicle. I, I, I realised quite quickly, sorry, that the music was a vehicle for, for to get me away out of this situation where really it was hopeless. Uh, that everything, the things that were happening around me were, were really, really scary. Mm-hmm. You know, people were going to jail, people were getting shot dead. And that's not dramatising it. That was how I felt about it. And I knew this was an opportunity and I clung on to it. Whenever you had that first gig with the, with the bank robbers, I believe it was 1979. And that was, the, that was the same year as both the Undertones and the Stiff Little Fingers put their debut album out. So it must have been an exciting time anyway for Northern Irish music. Jesus, Colin, you hit the nail on the head, my friend. That was it. Uh, you know, the, the, those were two bands that we subsequently, uh, what I call it, uh, gigged with then uh, a couple of years later. Uh, and still stayed great friends with uh, uh, Stiff Little Fingers. We've done a load of gigs with them and stuff, and I still still uh, keep in touch with Jake and Ali and all the, all the guys, and Jim Riley and all that, and a few of the undertones you all the time are talking, we chat with them. But yeah, they were great times, and they they blazed the trail and made it possible for us. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a little bit young for the punk scene, but my brother-in-law, um, he's, I think he's around the same age as you, and he, he's been educating me on those years. 
Yeah, this is it. I mean, you know, it's like Hooli is a good friend of mine, Jesus, to say the least, you know. Uh, uh, you know, me and Hooli are we're, we're good mates, you know. Uh, we were saying to uh, good, good vibrations also. But, you know, and I understand this, and it was right that, you know, when they made the movie and all the rest of it, and when they talk about good vibes, they generally talk about the punk thing. And as you've referenced just uh, uh, previously there, that we were more new wave. Mm. And we were more, Liam was a, a great song. I love the Beatles, John the same. You know, so they were really just, we were kind of coasting the whole punk thing, really. We weren't really punk, uh, but we were more new wave. But so the, the, we sang a good vibrations at one point pre uh, ELI. And, uh, you know, that's all been kind of eulogized, all that, uh, that whole era. But we were there, we were in there, we were quite. We have quite a, a large profile, frankly speaking, bigger and better profiles than some of the other bands that are referenced in Good Vibrations, you know. Mm. But, you know, we never got a look in there. That was okay. That's fine. Because we, we had a different a different vibe going on there all the guy. And I mean, no disrespect to any of the rest of the bands in that whole Good vibe, vibe, uh, Good Vibes movie. It was brilliant. And I was so delighted to see Terry getting his accolades and those bands also too, frankly, that the punk brought Belfast, brought the, uh, the Bell. We weren't really, we were a little bit part of this, but mainly punk brought brought uh, life back to Belfast. And, you know, so it should be acknowledged that, that subculture, as I say, and at that time, contextualized in, you know, in context with, with the troubles and all the rest of it, because it was a basic stepping stone in the normality again. And Hooli was behind that. It was Hooli's attitude, if you like, you know, his kind of uh, up yours attitude, which which really, you know, they're both, they're both fed of each other, the punk scene and Hooli's kind of uh, anarchic kind of outlook, you know, and and again, fed into the, the nightlife in Belfast, you know, all, all you see in Belfast were, were the soldiers, you know, there was no nightlife. And then the punks came in and the punks came from the Shankle and the Woodville and the, the Falls and the, the markets. And, you know, we just started the whole ball rolling again, the whole social life again. Just want to tell you a quick story. So sticking with Terry Hurley, uh, in around about 2009-10, I was in a kind of indie rock band. We didn't really go anywhere or do anything, but as you know, it's just being part of a band. It's just something really brilliant about that and having your gang of mates. But we... I think it was like our second or third gig, we actually entered a battle of the bands. It was in Lisburn. Uh, and, and we shouldn't have been, been near a stage, let alone performing in a battle of the bands. <laughs> but but Terry Hurley was one of the judges. <laughs> so we were, we were quite, uh, quite raw and quite nervous and it was just a complete disaster. And then it was, it was a bit like the X Factor where you kind of have to stand on the stage afterwards and hear the, audi- or hear the judge, judge's feedback. Yes. And... and Terry Hooley's words will st- still stick with me to this day. He said, you don't look like a band. You don't sound like a band. It was dreadful. And it, it went on after that into probably more abusive stuff. But then gradually all the band were dispersing, like just hiding behind amplifiers and just trying to walk up, walking off the stage and left the singer just standing in the middle to take all the abuse. <laughs> um, but, then, but then if we fast forward about maybe two or three years later, um, we were playing another gig in, in Man Nelson's, I guess, was called Cuckoo for a while on the Lisburn Road. It was a battle of the bands and Terry Hooley was again one of the judges. 
So we never really we never really progressed beyond the Battle of the Bands circuit, but uh, you had to do a cover. And, and we heard that Terry Hooley was going to be one of the judges. So, of course, we chose Teenage Kicks and we absolutely nailed it that night. And we did one of our own songs too. And he loved us. And we had a drink with him afterwards. And he actually took his eyeball out and put it in a pint glass. And we passed, passed the pint glass round. <laughs> the old classic. So, yeah. The old classic. Was, it was his party trick, wasn't it? Probably still is. Oh, Jesus. I think, Stan. I mean, you know, first of all, let me deal with your, your experience as regards to that. I mean, look, you tried and... You know, Hooley's not the last say, I tell you that anyway, you know. But uh, performance is, is, is a funny thing. You know, when you think you've bombed, people will say to you, no, Jesus, that was great. And it was really fantastic. And who knows, you know, it probably was. But maybe I'm just not feeling that way or, or whatever, you know. And uh, so over the years, I've moved more towards just, just doing it. And taking this sort of zen approach where, you know, someone said to me recently, uh, a friend of mine called Frank Liddy, he's a zen master, you know, what you're doing there is you're trying to control, you're trying to control things instead of just doing it and, you know, let go, let, don't try to control, just do it and you don't want to try to control it. Allow people to have their own experience and yeah, there's some tricks of the trade and all the rest with the whole build up of the lights or whatever. But other than that, at the end of the day, you really can't fake it as such. You can't fake it. Yeah, and I think I think there is something in that. So whenever bank robbers split in 1984, then you you moved on into Energy Orchard. So it was it was kind of moving away from that new wave punky sound into more rhythm and blues, more kind of folk rock, Irish folk rock kind of thing. Is that is that? That's right. Frank's, yeah, that's mm. exactly it. Actually, it'd be that's it spot on. So we we formed this band after the bank robbers just run their course uh, with EMI. You know, we didn't we didn't have a great record contract. We'd had a three singles deal, and we got the three singles out there, and we weren't great on the packing order. So we got the axe after eighteen months, but it was a great experience. There was a few, I was a wilderness, wilderness year or two. I still lived in London. Bob moved over to, to London with Brian, his brother, Brian Kennedy, and a bunch of other people. We all met up, bang. We got Energy Orchard together. And I suppose with uh, me knowing the ropes of the, uh, the AMI thing and being dead bang center in the music industry and, and knowing how everything works, that I kind of laid the, the, the charge in that regard and uh, I had the master plan and uh, I'm proud to say that it, it worked. Uh, Bob had the, 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 the material, he had, uh, mm. he was writing away, uh, albeit that when I, when I, we first met up in London, some of his songs were lasting like 15 minutes, you know, mm-hmm. I had to introduce Bob into the idea of the three and a half minute radio friendly song, you know, he hadn't really thought about that. You know? So we worked on that for uh, three, four, five, six months. Brian Kennedy was the singer. And uh, it was really the first year was just a bop and Brian arguing all the time. And then I threw up the head and said, you need to sort it out. Otherwise I'm leaving. And Brian, Brian left the next, next day, just threw his cards in. But then he done real well. A year later, Brian was on the crest of a wave like in his own career. And so were we, frankly. 
So worked out about a year and a half later. We we're all doing brilliant. You said they're just, you know, Bob was kind of the, the main lyricist. He had these ideas for songs. But the first single, I believe, was a song called Belfast, which was written by your good self. That was it, and an odd song it is too, because I'd, I'd written a song when I was 17, and if you listen to the song, it's only really three chords, three chords in the truth. And uh, years later, it was someone from the record company we were saying to MCA Records, and but someone heard then us jamming around with the song Belfast, and uh, said that's going to be the first single off the album. So. Um, eternally grateful to Bob, who in himself was the lead singer of the band and a great writer. And he embraced it completely. And that was, that, that was a, a, a beautiful sentiment, really, looking back, that Bob embraced it. You know, he, he says, I want to do that. You know, he, he threw himself in it. And I, I wrote it in a folk, folk sort of tradition, but it came across in a sort of Celtic rock thing, Energy Orchard version of it. And I got the number 58 in the charts and number one in Ireland, I think. According to Wikipedia, I got the number 52. So you're selling yourself short there. <laughs> Where's that other six, you know? I never got rollies for that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's great for, for obviously yourself and, and Bob to be both Belfast boys or West Belfast boys to have the first single from Energy Orchard to be the song Belfast and to really kind of set your soul out and say, here we are, this is where we're from. Exactly, and it's it's still you know served me to this day, Colin. You know, uh, you know when I gig, people will ask me for it and stuff. You know, and I'll, I'll do it. You know, and uh, it's really got an amazing, incredible story. Really, you know, it's the, the the song itself is it's a it's a freaky dicky one. I wrote a third verse for when the flag protest kicked off, and uh, I was out in out in uh, Palestine. I was out there with a load of Palestinian uh, musicians up the Golan Heights. And uh, da, 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 I was out there for a week, we're, we're writing and all of that. And uh, I was coming back through Tel Aviv and I was in the airport or in the, in the lounge of this uh, hotel. And it's, uh, I'll get in this conversation with a local a couple of local Israelis, and I've, I've ventured this notion that our peace process at the time, which would have been what five, six, seven years ago, maybe seven years ago, you know, it wasn't too bad at that point. It was kind of a, you know, it was a bit of a shining light for other conflicts around the world about that time, mm -hmm. just before the flag protest. And I said to these Israeli people, and they were like, they were a wee bit indignant about it, I have to say, you know. Me coming over telling them, you know what? Uh, you know, but it was only a suggestion. But I was in the hotel, I was about to go to the, the airport in an hour two, and there was a big, big screen up in the, in the lobby. And I just said to this crowd of people, and they, I was sitting somewhere else in the lobby, and the next thing, whew, Sky News came across. 
there's been social unrest in, in Belfast <laughs> and it showed you the whole rats around the city hall and they were all, one woman literally sort of pouted and went sort of <laughs> like fucking, there you go then, you know. Yeah, I don't think so. I was no. absolutely mortified. But I went home and I wrote a third verse for, oh, uh, the, the original of Belfast was two verses and then I thought I, read, I, I wrote a third verse an optimistic one, threw it out there, and uh, you know it's kind of a different. It's a different song now, really, if you like. So kicking kick on from Belfast, then I mean Energy Orchard, and that must have been an, an intense workload and touring schedule. Yes, uh, well, I suppose you know because I've never shied away from this, uh, but I'll make it sort of relatively short and sweet. After two years, really, I was well, it was longer than that, you know. Once the schedule kicked off, the album went out, we were sending the MCA records uh, Europe and all over the world. We're, and we were saying that uh, also in, Amer- Amer- in America, and America and Europe, they were fighting over us. You know, they knew the market and value of a band, or an authentic band from conflict-torn Belfast. You know, Irish America would have been uh, they knew that they were trying to tap into that market, you know, the U2 market sort of thing. Only we were more authentic than U2 in that sense, if you follow where I'm coming from. And uh, the schedule was just, it was horrific, you know. It was really, really horrific. We never stopped. And uh, I had a couple of kids through that period. And also the famous second album was Lumen. And, uh, you know, I watched the band, Amity Orchard, do what I did during the EMI days and really started to sort of piss it up against the wall. Everybody started drinking and thought that everything was going to be all right. And the, but this is where the real work was beginning, the, 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 the gig and the, the promoting and all the rest of it. But we also needed to keep writing and there wasn't much of that being done. And so there was real tension beginning to grow and then I started drinking and started taking drugs uh, and uh, ended up, I ended up, just completely uh, ended up in a clinic, believe it or not. Uh, I had three days off in London after about being flat out for about 18 months, nonstop, having a couple of kids in between times. And uh, I ended up just, I was so exhausted that uh, the management booked me into this clinic and I uh, spent about two weeks there. And then it was a series of uh, back to Belfast uh, with my family and just to sort of convalesce. And uh, those days they were just banging people up on the Mazipan and all of that. And I was, out, I was out of it for about six months, really. And uh, mm-hmm. then the insurance companies, there was animosity like between me and the rest of the band. I'd done a few videos and stuff like that, a few gigs here and there. But then the insurance companies started to put pressure on the band because uh, uh, they wouldn't insure me. They said they wouldn't insure me because, you know, they thought that I might, you know, go off the rails again. Eventually, I just signed myself out of the band. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the band went on and uh, never really, you know, it's, and I know it sounds like I'm saying, without me, they didn't go where, anywhere. But the truth is, that's what happened. Mm. <laughs> they didn't really, because we were very, we were a very delicate chemical uh, b- balanced band. Like you know, uh, we had certain 
there was a certain uh, balance there between the six of us. And if any one of us, frankly, had a left, it wouldn't have been the same band. And I know that it might sound a bit controversial to maybe some of the rest of the band are listening. They'll probably go, what was he talking about? But they'll have their own version. But that's my version. But my version's backed up by facts. That's not bitter or acrimonious. I mean, me and Bob made it up. I still get on great with the rest of the band. So it's not like that. But there was acrimony at the time. So, I mean, you've still been active since then. You've still been writing and putting out music. Most definitely. And uh, I think at that point was an interesting period because I lost after a few years. I was writing and then after a few years, and frankly, I just went, you know what, this three and a half minute, four minute contemporary folk classic song, it's a bore, you know, uh, you know, and seeing how the music industry worked and all and how it all worked and it worked towards them sort of three and a half, four minutes. And I just thought, like, you know, now I'm going to do something else in music. I'm going to, I'm not giving up. I, I says I'm going to give up that sort of classic songwriting. And, uh, uh, yeah, I really hadn't got anything to say anyway at that time. You know what I mean? I was sort of felt a bit bit out and I ambled on there for, for a few years, just in the wilderness, really. But then I was, I was coming older. I had a couple of kids. I was, I was living in West Belfast again. And I started becoming a bit more social, politically aware kind of a person. And uh, I started getting interested in conflicts, if you like. And uh, Bosnia was going on there and everything. And, you know, the peace process and all was beginning to gather the momentum there. And, 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 and uh, I was quite passionate about some of these social, political issues. And then I woke up one morning and realised, well, how am I going to express this? You know, these ideas I have in my head. Then I went, hold on a minute, I'm a songwriter. You know, this wee three and a half minute, four minute song, this vehicle, I can use this. I can pluck that back out again, start important sort of my lyrics and the ideas into these songs. And I started off on that trip and that, was, that's, that ended up being a completely different part of the journey for me as an artist. And in fact, it was only then that I felt like an artist. The rest of it was just, and I tell you the truth, Colin, and no one can ever take it away from me. Like, I had a career like that, the energy was the bank robber stuff, and I signed million pound contracts as Joby Fox, the artist. And I no more felt like an artist than somebody working, you know, built, digging holes on a building site. You know what I mean? It was, I just never see myself as an artist. I was like, wise up. I'm not an artist, but when I started out on that initiative, I started out in that journey, I felt like an artist. I, I, I put an album together called The End of the War, and I, I knew its value, even as I was working on it. I had a tremendous feeling of, of I was connected to the zeitgeist, I was connected to the current, current debate, and I knew that I was, what was going down there had value, both to the debate and the discourse around uh, societies moving on from conflicts, and I knew that it had a academic appeal and everything, and it subsequently did end up going down that road. And did, did you feel more passionate about about creating those batch of songs than you had done previously with the, with the bands? No doubt about it. it. It wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. You were thinking about more commercial success in those days, in the, in the young, you, you know, the first part, Energy Orchard, Bank Robbers. 
that was more about commercial success and that of course you you did know you were making quite a quite a, a you know quite a statement too at the same time because you're mm. just by virtue of the fact that you are from Belfast but it's a no comparison compared to uh, uh, when I started writing the, the end of the war album and I wrote I also uh, shot a five minute film short film along with the album and created a show called the end of the war show where it was interactive you showed the you showed the the five minute uh, short movie called Lost Commandos, and you played tracks off the album and the war, and you also done a Q and A afterwards, and you done it the the gigs that we were doing were to sometimes the ex combatants and all this kind of stuff, and you know I went to New York, I went uh, uh, that's partly what brought me to Palestine, and I also ended up in Hong Kong. Uh, doing a big festival for the UEN and you know back in back in Belfast too so it was great that was a real thrill that was a real thrill yeah it sounds like it I mean I know on your website too that you have three words that you use to describe yourself are writer musician humanitarian that's right and uh, I think I'm not sure if it was the first time that I met you, but it was I think it was t- 2015. I heard you speak at an event in the Sunflower Bar um, around that time. That was part of the, the, the Lifeboat campaign. That's right. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us just a, a little bit about that project? Because I think that was just really wonderful work and, and not just you weren't just writing songs about these issues. You were actually getting your hands dirty for want of a better expression. That's exactly right, man, because and that that really helps me lead into the point and make the point a lot easier that, you know, I went and, you know, all the things that we've talked about today and it got to this point, the say the end of war album and all the rest and, and a reference there, I went to Hong Kong and I, I was, you know, doing a big uh, festival for a global festival for UN, but it, it became, I was literally standing, for example, in this big stadium in Hong Kong, me with my wee acoustic guitar singing. And I didn't really know what it was all about this. <laughs> you know, I, I'd lost the connection between uh, the impact, I couldn't see any impact, previous pro- stuff that I'd done with the End of the War Project. I was looking at people's faces, ex-combatants, different people involved in the the, uh, the peace process and all the rest, I could see the impact it was having on them, you know, the discussions and all. And so it all got a bit corporate. I just, something just inside me just went, you know, excuse the expression, but fuck this, you know, I'm not about that. I want to see the impact of my work. This music lark is, is great, but if you're just going to sing about it and if you're just going to write about it and, you know, pontificate upon it and, you know, be all academic and beard stroking about it. It's like, I couldn't harm that. My conscience wouldn't allow me to, you know, maybe if I done a gig like that and I picked X amount of money up at the end of it, I go, I, I, I was developing a conscience about that sort of thing. I was going, am I part of this industrial peace process? Am I part of, am I, am I thriving on this? Am I benefiting from this, this subject matter, you know? And I, I developed a big conscience about it and a reaction was, and I, my partner, Sophie, who's like a dream come true, she's like, you know, she really was really supportive in my sort of artistic uh, 
endeavors and thoughts and my personal thoughts, not just artistically, but you know, my personal thoughts and how to express them in an artistic way too. And I said to her, I, I'd be talking to her at length about all these things and and I told her about my aspiration and my, uh, I wanted to help people, you know, beyond the music. And then I seen the unfolding of the Syrian war, of course, and the refugees coming across Turkey, from Turkey to the islands, Lesbos and Forest Islands, and I seen little Alan, uh, the, the wee boy that, that, that washed up on the beach. What was the second name? Sorry, I have lost the, the second name. But th th that image, even before that, I was up out of my seat, you know, and I was saying to Sophie, in some ways it was sounding her out. We just had Rory, he was about 18 months, and I was going, Sophie, you know the impact that this is having on me. It was killing me, man. It was killing me. I was like, this is Europe, this isn't Asia, this isn't the Middle East. This is, I'm, it says European on my passport. I'm a European. This is happening on our watch. This is right here where, where we live, you know. So I was getting reared up about it. It was having an effect on me. It was making me, it was making me stalk up and down the room going, what the, you know what? WTF, WTF, that was me. I was like, what the, you know. And it, for a couple of weeks, it was like that. And then I fancy the wee boy washed up on the beach and that image just, it just blew me away. It just blew me away. And I, I said to Sophie, I'm going down there. And she said, go for it, Joe. So I had it down there and, and uh, I spent a couple of weeks, I could tell you all sorts, sorts of stories, but uh, it was just, you know, such a shock, such a shock. I mean, I made up to Turkey uh, on the way to get the last, boat over to the island but I met a few people who'd just come off Lesbos and I'll never forget this as long as I live uh, I suppose if you look at it like the whole metaphoric it's metaphorically like it was like getting into a hot bath and this was the point where it was starting to get into this really hot bath it was like I met these people from uh, National Geographic and they had been over taking photographs and there was a woman on their on their crew I got into their company at a, uh, at a place to eat and says, yeah, you're going over. And I says, yes. And says, look, you got to prepare yourself for this. This is, this is scurry stuff. Like you're going to have to prepare yourself for this. So I was like starting to like really starting to tune in then and going, oh God, right here we go sort of thing. And then I met this other woman who was with them and she was like, you know, when you meet somebody and they just kind of, they overwhelm you. She was frantic. She was completely frantic. And she was, uh, talking excessively and saying, we've got to do things, we've got to do something. The others were saying, you need to calm down and just take a good couple of good nights sleep after that. But I remember thinking this, it must be an innate part of this woman's character just to be like that. But how wrong was I? When I went over, I ended up, at the, it was at night and uh, I, I got myself booked into this little hotel and, and it was just like a wee villagey place. And, up near the coast of north end of Lesbos. And I, I walked up this sort of dirt road and I met a few people coming back and I says, is this where the refugees are coming? And they says, oh yeah, yeah. All along there, six or seven males will come in all the time, but there won't be any tonight because the sea's so bad. And it was, it was really bad. And uh, they said that uh, 
you you know, I told them what I was doing, why I came. He says, yes, there's a few people have come just like this, you know. And I said, uh, okay, I'm going to go down and look anyway. So I went down to the beach and there was a couple of people there on a makeshift tent. And I was only there a half an hour and the first boat came in. And it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been on the water. There was no other boats on the water. And it was, it was just a nightmare. And that was really the start of it for me. I was well in the hot bath. And, and when I say me, I mean, it was really, it's the refugees really that went through it. You know, not me as such, but it was my first witnessing of how horrific things were. And it was horrific. And it was probably one of the worst things that I've seen. But I couldn't walk away. The, 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 there was a dinghy. It ended up in the water and there were people everywhere and all that sort of stuff. And we caught them all, but it was pretty horrific, you know. And uh, that went on for a couple of weeks and I couldn't walk away. There were only about 50 people like me from all over the world. There was no UN. There was no uh, agencies, no nothing. And we're talking with thousands and thousands of people. There was people drowning every day and there was no one around. What do you put down that that apathy towards those those people and those stories too? I'll tell you what I would say it is. It's a disconnect. You know the way people go, oh God, that's terrible. You know, they'll see it on the news and they go, oh God, that's terrible. And they like to go, oh, that's terrible. And then they'll go, maybe they give fair play and they'll give a wee bit of money or something like that. But they don't really get the fact you know, and, and society's designed this way. The world is designed this way. Western societies are designed this way to think, well, that's them, you know, or that's over there. They forget that they're human. They forget that these are human, human, this is, these are, this is human tragedy. And we're human. And we really should be focusing on that, you know, on other human beings and trying to help all the human beings, aside from their nationality, their, their religious beliefs, or, you know, if there's, if there's uh, systems, global systems and all the rest of it, the systems are meant to serve the human species, if you like, the hu human beings on this planet. It's like people have a lack of awareness, what the reality of it is, and what the reality of the fact that we're just human beings sitting on a, a globular sphere suspended in space, you know, nobody wants to handle that at all. No one wants to talk about that. You know, no one wants to talk about the fact that we're on a planet. We're on a planet and millions and millions and maybe billions of planets. And this planet sustains us and gives us everything we need. And, you know, we're trying to work all out these different systems and all the rest of it. And it's counterintuitive. It's causing, causing people it's causing uh, hurt and pain to other people, dropping bombs on people. You know, let's get down to it. Let's just call it as it is. Every time we spend a pound, there's X amount of that money going towards the war machine, towards the, the bombs that are dropping, dropping on these people. We're all complicit in it. Every single one of us is. And if anybody starts to go and they're listening to this here and they go, oh, shut up. I'm nothing, it's nothing to do with me and all the rest of it. It is. It is everything to do with you. It's, 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 it is to me. It's something to do with me too. You know what I mean? And I, I, people would say to me, oh, you've done great there. I don't think I've done anything. All I've done was what, uh, you know, all I've done was went, 
at least I have that. At least I have that. I can say I didn't look away. I went and it on the train to do something. And that's what people need to do. They need to try and do something. And, 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 and really, when they do it, they'll realise they're human. It's just, we're all human. We all, we, we all feel. We're, we're all connected by our feelings. And we all feel pain. And yeah, you can't do something about it. Yeah, and you're, you're right in, in everything you said there. Um, and I think the media and people in general kind of t- quite tunnel vision. They look maybe at the people in the boat on the water and, and they see that as a problem. And yes, you mentioned about how people can donate money to that or to whatever charity that they believe in. But then if you tra- trace it back and look at it from kind of the reasons behind it all, that's when it gets complicated for people whether it's migrants in a boat or it's it does, pe- and people using a food bank or people living homeless in Belfast here, you know, once you, you go back and you look at the reasons, it does become political. But I think I'm, I'm in admiration because you said, you know, that you don't want kind of gratitude or whatever for it, but you did something. And I think that's very admirable. I can, man, I can't even think like that. I swear to God, I can't. I mean, I do realise, like, I got, out of, I got off my ass and I went and done, but it wasn't just me. There was Jude Bennett, there was Richie Hurd, there was loads and loads of people from from the north from england and we're now international organization now refugee rescue mm-hmm. and uh at the end of the day what we say to ourselves among ourselves is we didn't look away that's what we say that's all we say you know no matter what we did we didn't look away we didn't look away yes and i think for us as artists you know you and the music and me within the, the poetry world but for us to be able to use our art form to, to raise awareness of these issues and whether it is actually physically through the art or through just a chat like this or through social media, I think it is, is vitally important to keep that focus on those. De- definitely. And I think, and I'm, you know, I don't want, want, want to make this a mutual appreciating society, but I don't care if it sounds like that. I love what you do, Carl. I think you're class. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're class. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got three fans now. That's you and my mum and dad. So... <laughs> But we love you, mate. So we, we love, man. We love your stuff, man. We, I mean, Seamus, Seamus Fox, who, you know, when it went on, Seamus, when I first seen Seamus years ago, my jaw hit the ground, you know. And I just love that sort of thing. Because previous to that, I would think spoken words bit boring, like, you know. But it, it's not, obviously, you know, it's, it's, uh, when you've got Seamus and the like, you run about the place. Well, that's, this is, I was actually thinking in the lead up to this chat about where, when we met and I'd, for, I'd actually forgotten about the, the BAPS video. Uh, that was right. Uh, there, was, there was about five of us who were part of the army of army of boys named BAP. That's right. And, and there was like, there was four kind of quite stocky, well-built, aggressive looking men in there. And then there was me on the end of this <laughs> doing my best to look hard and I just I didn't really fit in with the, <laughs> the army did. aspect. <laughs> exactly. Seamus Fox, YouTube, uh Baps. Uh, if you look that one up, I'd say that's a, 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 a people should enjoy that one. It's a You're talking about um, poems there and that Seamus is, is a, a great man who uses humor in his poems to convey a message. And I know that um, your most recent release that you put out was it's called Brexit Blues, That's which is right. a little jazzy kind of comedy number about obviously the Brexit situation. I recorded it here in Denmark uh, with a load of jazzers uh, uh, locally here, and it worked out lovely. And uh, it's called Brexit Blues. It starts with the, the lyric, the first lyric is, we're all in trouble, so get your coat and shovel. 
Well, Barry Brexit on the border tonight. The party's swinging back to the beginning. Let's give the people such a terrible fright. Oh, just let's face it. We'll have to live in peace and love someday. Oh, we're living on a rock. We just can't stop to chase the Brexit blues away. I mean, I'm not in the same league as you guys lyrically, but that would be... I was quite proud of it. Yeah, and no, it was it was it was a really funny song, and I would highly recommend that people also check that out too. So on that note, um, could you give out your your social media or website or whatever links you want to give out for people to check you out? Yes, uh, jobyfox.com. Uh, that's my website. Uh, I've got a Twitter account. Uh, I'm not really into Instagram really, but I think I have got an Instagram account, and uh, you get me on Facebook also. And uh, yeah, and a few YouTube videos out there, but mainly through www.jobyfox.com, you'll get me. And I know you've you've you mentioned your Brexit blues lyrics there, but I actually have the, the lyrics for Belfast up on the screen here, and I think it kind of ties in not just with Belfast and our kind of creative journey, but also with your humanitarian work and and just kind of maybe growing older as well. And it's, I think that the the verse in the Belfast song is beautiful, and I'm going to read it now if you don't mind. And it goes like this. Now we're here, and as far as I can see, we have come a long way together. So hold my hand, so both can be free from the troubles and the darkness. And I think that's just a really beautiful sentiment. So there's a there's a poet in there somewhere. There is. I'm a poet that don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a poet and I'm aware of it. Really. Uh, exactly. <laughs> I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for your time, and it was wonderful hearing um, about your your life and your creative journey and, and all the work that you've been doing. Um, so, thank you for joining me on the Dunkern podcast. Thank you, and I'll, I'll see you when I'll see you on the other side of this madness. Hopefully, in the That's virtual it. or the, the physical world somewhere. Hopefully. Indeed, we can mm. we can dance. We can dance. That's the, you know we'll do a waltz or whatever you know. Uh, we'll <laughs> see you about that. <laughs> can't promise you, you should say I can't promise you. <laughs> Inspiring stuff there from Juby Fox and an invitation for a dance for me as well. I've still got it. Just while I'm thinking about it, when I was editing the interview, I had thought of bleeping out the swear words. Well, not exactly bleeping them out, I was in actual fact going to use this noise. But I figured that it might be disrespectful and possibly undermine some of the serious points that Joby was making. But I definitely would encourage you to visit Joby's website, as in the time we had to talk it just wasn't possible to fit in all the details of such an interesting and varied life and career. And check out this link. If you like things that are interesting and varied, you can watch the Dunkern's Take Two Arts Magazine show which is going to be a weekly broadcast on the Dunkern social media channels every Saturday night from now until Christmas. Take Two provides a wonderful mix of music, poetry, chat and much more to keep us all entertained on the dark, cold weekends stuck in lockdown. So tune in every Saturday night from 8pm and the last episode which features Neve Regan, The Alcoves and much more is available to watch back through the usual social media platforms. Now Joby and I finished off our chat with a short burst of lyrics from his song Belfast. And I'd like to finish off this podcast with a short burst of a poem called Euro P. Anne, which I wrote in America, but thinking about the journey back home. 
and it goes exactly like this. When I asked an American woman in America if she'd ever been to Ireland and she replied that she'd never been to Europe, the answer caught me off guard. Yes. Yes, we are in Europe. I've seen the map. Our mad little island like a caged dog barking in the corner of a cattery is a mere Celtic giant spitting distance to France. But to be considered European seems odd. I immediately felt underdressed and less concerned about the rising price of pints. Euro P an. Yes. Yes, that's a comfortable polo neck I can wear for a few days until the airport shuttle bus arrives. Then I'll follow the North Atlantic drift into the rain. To where folk make small talk about the rain. To where conversations about identity seldom contain the word European. That's it. If you'd like to read that poem, it is available on the Honest Ulsterman website. And while you're on the interweb, check out my website. And not forgetting Seamus Fox's BAPS poem as well. In the next episode of the Dunkern Podcast, I'll be talking to an extremely funny comedian and actress. But for now, thank you for listening. And ciao, a Peter saying, moi moi, and toodaloo.